And I'll just say a short prayer so that we can start with talking about St. Nectarios. The prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Um, last time we were discussing the essay concerning Greek philosophy. And um, St. Nectarios, remember, he's, he's talking about Greek philosophy. He's talking to Greeks in Greece um, about Greek philosophy. Um, I think this was this was at, in Athens at the Rizario school. Um, and he's remember he's interested in elevating his fellow man and elevating those people that are actually in front of him, spiritually benefiting them, edifying them, and leading them to a higher calling, right? And showing them a higher um, ideal that they should um, uh, uh, conform, conform their lives to. So this is why he's talking to Greeks about Greeks, about Greek philosophy, and about the role of the Greek nation, um, and about the, um, both the role of the Greek nation in the dissemination of Greek philosophy, and thus the the cultivation of other nations, the cultivation of philosophy in other nations, which according to St. Nectarios, first St. Nectarios is also would constitute their Hellenization, making them Greeks, because Greekness, Hellenicity is a way of life. It's not a biological state or a condition necessarily. Um, and um, he's, he's talking to them about about the role of, of the Greeks in the dissemination of philosophy, but also of Christianity. Uh, and Greek philosophy is precisely the role that led the ancient Greeks to Christianity. And last week we said that um, many of St. Nectarius' descriptions of this relationship between philosophy and Christianity are actually demonstrated in the um, lives of the saints. If we, if we read the lives of the saints, who, um, who lived in the, in the third or the fourth century or even earlier. St. Catherine, of course, is an example of someone who studied uh, ancient philosophy and through ancient philosophy, uh, through uh, something called natural theology, was able to ascend to a certain intellectual understanding of the truth to transcend in other words, her ancestral religion and the, the ancestral cult, the mythology of the ancient Greeks, the Greeks, to realize that um, the creator of nature, nature's God, is beyond um, the myths of the Greeks and of all the other ancient peoples, because of course, St. Catherine lived in Alexandria which was a Greek city in Egypt. And so would have been familiar also with the Egyptian gods. And, and in fact, in her lifetime, in her era, uh, there was a lot of mixing going on between Greek religion and Egyptian religion and so on and so forth. Greek, Greek gods were worshiped in Egypt and Egyptian gods were worshiped in Greece and so on and, and beyond. Um, but through philosophy, she was able to go through this natural theology. Natural theology is the, the use of reason through and, and, and observation to, to come to reach conclusions about God, about God's characteristics. Um, and she transcended this and became ready to receive Christianity, right? Philosophy takes us up to a certain point, and then there's like a glass ceiling, or perhaps not even a glass ceiling. It's an, it's an opaque, I think he says, there's an opaque barrier that, that philosophy can't go beyond. Divine revelation is necessary. Uh, to, to move beyond that barrier. Um, but the pinnacle of ancient Greek philosophy, according to St. Nectarios, is this uh, idea of self-knowledge, know thyself, which, of course, for Socrates was the beginning of his philosophical journey, knowing thyself. This is why he would say, 
you know, this is why he would question people. The main point, if you read any of the, uh, the Platonic dialogues, it's all about definitions. What does this mean? What does that mean? Um, right? W what is beauty? And, and how do you know that? Right? But then at the end, he demonstrates that most of his interlocutors have no self-knowledge um, because they don't know what they're talking about. They don't have proper definitions. Uh, but he doesn't say that he has complete self. Well, he does say that he has a basic self-knowledge. He knows that he doesn't know anything. Um, but that's illustrating the point that self-knowledge is kind of the center of the whole um, uh, complex of Greek, uh, uh, you know, the, the, whole, the, the whole edifice of Greek philosophy. Um, uh, but self-knowledge is, is, a, is a very important um, part of philosophy, according to Nicodemus, because um, through self-knowledge, and I'm starting on page 58, section 6, he knows his, the Greek, but in general the human being, knows his relation to the divine, his nobility, and the becoming, and that becoming like unto the divine is his greatest duty, Right? He knows what he is. I remember last time we talked about two types of self-knowledge. Um, the first type of self-knowledge is knowing what you are. And the second type of self-knowledge is knowing the truth about yourself. Um, so knowing your dignity, um, knowing your relationship to the divine, knowing that uh, be becoming likened to the divine, assimilation to God, uh, Plato actually used this phrase first. Uh, assimilation to God as much as possible. Um, Saint Ectarius argues that that conclusion, that this is the point of life, assimilation to God, union with God, uh, comes out of a natural theological sort of explore, uh, uh, contemplation of knowledge of the self. Um, and so self-knowledge leads us to the conclusion that our greatest duty is to become like God. This is something, of course, that was also in the Old Testament, perhaps the central part of the Old Testament, that, God, that man was made in the image and likeness of God, in the image and likeness of God. The fall, of course, shattered the, the, the image and um, and 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 distorted the likeness. So the the whole struggle of the whole all of human history afterwards was either a result of this shattering or the restoration of the image and the likeness and the attainment of the likeness. Um, but once you realize these three things: our relationship to God, the nobility of our nature, and our duty to become like God. It's at that point that you could actually attain an internal knowledge, the, the, the knowledge of the truth about yourself internally, right? Um, because that's, that's your measuring stick, right? You don't have uh, knowing the nobility of your, na of your nature is exactly what allows you then to understand what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're doing, whether it's good or bad. Right, and how it measures up against that standard. Um, through self-knowledge, the Greek, and by extension human beings, the human being learns that his mission in the world is perfection, his ascent from the material to the spiritual world. He learns that it is the spiritual world that gives life to the material world, that the spirit must prevail over matter that spiritual laws must hold greater sway over him than natural laws, that these former laws, being rational, must prevail in him, that man becomes perfectly like unto God when he's adorned with piety, justice, truth, and knowledge, because these virtues truly contain perfecting power within them. Piety brings him close to the divine, while justice, truth, and knowledge shape him into the divine, into the divine image and likeness. Right. Um, page 59, the Greek, knowing both who he is and what he ought to become, set his sights on his own perfection. Right. Who he is and what he ought to become. That's what that this is the love of wisdom of philosophy. Right. What is the wisdom about wisdom about what about this, who we are, who I am and 
who I ought to become. Um, and so since philosophy played a huge role in um, Greek culture, uh, well, Greek, Greek philosophy was a product of Greek culture, but then it turned around and shaped Greek culture as well over the uh, subsequent uh, centuries. Uh, St. Nectarius says the Greek was created, thus the Greek was created. It, this shaped his ethnic character and his ethnic character was formed in this way. His ethnic character, he's saying, was formed in a way that prepared him to receive Christianity. And here I want to make a point about culture. We underestimate culture. We've talked about this before, so I'm, I'm going to repeat a few things that I said before. But we underestimate the role of culture because we are um, accustomed to separating the mind from the body. Uh, we're accustomed to, um, on the one hand, value, in some instances, value material things more than spiritual things. In other instances, uh, 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 separate spiritual things from material things. We create these compartments. Um, and also, we, we approach uh, the spiritual life and orthodoxy, in particular, as a set of ideas that are disconnected, even philosophy, even secular philosophy. If you take philosophy class at a university, uh, you know what I'm talking about. The, it's completely disconnected from real life. It's just a bunch of ideas that you think about. Um, but original philosophy was not that. Original philosophy was a way of life. And that's much more true about the faith. The faith is a way of life. And if it's a way of life, it touches all aspects of our life. It reshapes our relationships. It, it forms our ideas. It, it's the context in which our ideas emerge from, from which our ideas emerge. Um, it reshapes, if we look historically, it reshaped the polity of the Christians, the Byzantine Empire being perhaps the most prominent example of an entire society reshaped by Christianity at the first Christian culture um, St. Nicodemus is going to point out how the culture is important. It was also important in the preparation for the coming of Christ. So culture matters. Um, and uh, on the top of page 59, I think we have a very succinct um, you know, uh, uh, explanation as to why it matters. Culture um, led the Greeks to self-knowledge. It's through culture that the Greek became a lover, it's through Greek culture that he became a lover of the spirit and created a spiritual world when it, wherein he desired to live. Knowledge of the beautiful, of the good, of truth, and his natural love for his neighbor fostered in the Greek's heart a desire to give to others what he had himself acquired, spreading the culture. And thus he became humanity's teacher. He sought to conform all men to himself, though he was not a conqueror of bodies. Although Alexander obviously conquered bodies, but that was the, the, the people that came after him were not about conquering bodies, but about but of the spirit. Conqueror of the spirit. He did not seek to make slaves, but free men. He loved this, and this divine love became the motivation behind all his actions. Right. Um, Right, and so this is not true of all cultures, though. All human beings have the ability to form these types of cultures, but not all cultures actually attain this. And of course, ancient Greek culture is not the highest form of culture either. That came later with Christianity, um, but it was a stepping stone in that direction. Um, but not all cultures are equal. There are many cultures that actually do the exact opposite of all of this. Right, um, they lead us to the knowledge of the ugly, <laughs> and of and of the evil, and of uh, of uh, untruth, and hatred of one's neighbor, um, and a desire to take things away from people, and a desire to conquer people's bodies. So, in most cultures in human history, have actually led to these conclusions, right, um, and and they've 
It's a, a result of culture that human beings have been led astray, right? The, the cultures based on evil ideas and wrong ideas uh, have led people away from the knowledge of beauty, the knowledge of good, the knowledge of the truth, right? The pagan religions, even in, among the Greeks, pagan ideas, mythology was passed down through a process of cultural transmission. Uh, Socrates, for example, was not a pagan because he decided to be a pagan, but because he was, he was born into a pagan society. Um, today, we live in a post-Christian culture, and that post-Christian culture um, even uh, does the opposite of what, it works in the opposite direction than Christian culture did. Um, and um, it, its main goals or its main ideals militate against the knowledge of good, the knowledge of the beautiful, the knowledge of truth, right? Um, this is why we have to opt out of this culture. We have to be countercultural. We cannot be part of this world, which does not mean that we cannot have a culture, but because we have to, because we have to actually live out our faith in our everyday life. And we have to do that in communities because otherwise we can't be saved, right? The ancient Christians said, uh, um, nolus, right? Uh, excuse me, solus Christianus, nolus Christianus. The sole Christian, the Christian alone is no Christian at all. So we have to do this in communities. And in the moment that we live in, live our faith in communities, we have it, we're creating a Christian culture. We're maintaining a Christian culture. We're living out a Christian culture. But to do that, we have to opt out of this one. We really do. It's really getting really bad. And I don't, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why. I think everyone can intuit and or uh, understand um, what I'm talking about. Um, we got away with kind of being hybrid for a long time, for a couple of decades, since perhaps the 19, I don't know, anytime, 1950s, 1960s. Um, we got away with being hybrid, having one foot on one boat and another foot in another boat. Uh, but now, now those boats are moving in completely opposite directions, and it's, it's an untenable <laughs> stance, uh, literally. We will fall if we continue to have our foot in the other boat. Uh, we have to get completely into the church's boat. Um, and we have to, in particular, if we have children, protect our children from the influences of this culture, because again, culture matters. Um, so um, I'm going to jump ahead to uh, page 60. Uh, Senectarios again says, Greek philosophy guided the Greek nation towards Christianity. And then he quotes Clement of Alexandria, who is a third century um, saint uh, or father of the church. Um, of course, he's not, he, he, I don't believe, he wasn't the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, I believe, was a layman. Uh, but he wrote important treatises about the relationship between, he, was, he also wrote Defenses of Christianity, and he wrote important treatises on the relationship between Christianity and classical culture, right? And one of the more famous passages is given to us on page 60 from the Stromata 1.5. Um, Clement of Alexandria says, accordingly, before the advent of the Lord, Philosophy was necessary to the Greeks for righteousness, for the purpose of righteousness. And now it becomes conducive to piety, now that there's this revelation of God that's, and, and the, the, the gospel is being spread by the apostles and their successors throughout the Greco-Roman world. It becomes conducive to piety, being a kind of preparatory training to those who attain to faith through demonstration. Prepar culture being preparatory training. Historically, that's true. And in principle, that's true. Historically, this is the way Greek philosophy functioned. Um, it, it, in the conversion of the ancient peoples to Christianity. Right? Philosophy was the preparatory training. St. Catherine is, again, the example. Her training in philosophy prepared her to become Christian. Um, God provided it, uh, provided it that way. Um, but it's also true in general that culture, to the point I was making previously, culture ought to be preparatory training. 
This is the way we should conceive of our culture, that it's preparatory training for the faith, for living out the faith. Um, for your foot, it is said, will not stumble if you refer what is good, whether belonging to the Greeks or to us, to providence, actually to providence. For God is the cause of all good things, but of some primarily, as of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and of others by consequence as philosophy, right? So direct revelation, which is God speaking to the prophets like he spoke to Moses or to the holy prophet Elias, or when he came in the flesh in the New Testament, right? That's direct revelation. But then as a consequence, this is indirect revelation through creation, right? Natural philosophy through creation, the, uh, through uh, observing nature in the natural world, and also coming to a self-understanding, coming to self-knowledge. Perchance, too, philosophy was given to the Greeks directly and primarily until the Lord should, should call the Greeks. For this was a schoolmaster to bring the Hellenic mind as the law, the, the Hebrews, to Christ. So we have two parallel preparations. The pre preparation of philosophy, right? Philosophy as, as the preparation, um, as the schoolmaster, pedagogos, that's the, uh, that is the title of another uh, writing that Clement of Alexandria wrote, pedagogos, schoolmaster. Uh, on the one hand, you have the law that brings the Hebrews to Christ, because remember, the entirety of the Mosaic law was a, a long extended prophecy the code, so to speak, that revealed the identity of the Messiah, both about who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would be, um, that he would be the son of God, not just the prophet. Um, so the, the whole law was, was given to the, to the uh, prophets for that reason. But philosophy was given to the Greeks in order to bring them to Christ. So we have these two parallel tracks. Of course, one was more intense than the other. The law is more intense because it was a product of direct revelation. Uh, whereas philosophy was a product of natural theology. Philosophy, therefore, was a preparation paving the way for him who is perfected in Christ. The way of truth is therefore one, but into it, as into a perennial river, streams flow, for, streams flow from all sides. And really, all cultures have some element that could be called preparatory. Um, Right? There's something, in fact, there's a Catholic writer, his name is G.K. Chesterton. I don't, I don't know if you guys have, have read him at all. You should look him up um, because he has a lot of interesting points that he makes about the relationship between uh, Christians and the modern world. He wrote about 100 years ago. Um, but anyway, he says that behind all polytheisms is a hidden monotheism. Uh, meaning that in most poly almost all known polytheistic systems, uh, pantheons, there's always a father god who's above everyone else. So it all leads back to one god. Which of course is not to uh, say that polytheism, that, that, that there's any truth in polytheism. But it's to say that there's some kind of remnant from the original religion of Adam and of Noah in all religions and cultures, um, that the saints have often used to their advantage, to the advantage, of course, of the souls of the people that they're trying to save, to use uh, to to preach to them. Um, and so, with the Greeks, you know, there's it's slightly more concentrated than it is with in Greek culture than it is in other culture than it was in other cultures at the time. Um, and of course, uh, Clement here clarifies, Sinecterus clarifies that Clement is talking about whatever the philosopher said that was sound, because the philosopher said many other things that were not sound. Um, but whatever they said that was sound was the work of the divine economy. Um, whether then they say that the Greeks gave forth some utterance of the true philosophy by accident. Actually, this little paragraph here, I was trying to figure it out. There, this is a problem with the translation. I have to look up the original to actually um, 
to get through it. I think it's a little too literal. I was looking at it. I'm like, wait a minute, this is Greek syntax. It's not English syntax. Um, uh, what he's trying to say here is that it's not, it's not an accident. We can't say it's an accident. Or we can't say it's fortune. Because even if it is an accident, um, it, the accident of, the, of a divine administration, um, right? It's the accident of a divine administration, which means no accident at all. Uh, if it's by good fortune that that these that the philosophers hit upon something that's sound, um, there is no good fortune that's unseen, meaning it's a product of divine providence, right? Um, the, the, the clincher is the last part. We know the one creator of nature. The one creator of nature. So it's by the, God gave us. So what are we talking about here with natural theology and with whatever the philosopher said that was sound was the work of the divine economy? We're talking about God providing clues about who he is in nature, uh, in, in the structure of nature. The structure of beings providing clues and then also providing clues within us, inside of ourselves, inside in our souls and our bodies, um, but time giving us the equipment to detect all of that is providential. All of that is the product of the divine prov of, of God's providence and thus God's economy. What is God, what is divine economy? Divine economy is God's um, uh, work to save us, to save us from sin. And so, what is divine providence is also divine economy, because whatever when God, like we were saying earlier about pain and suffering, God provides, He allows, He foresees, He allows, He prepares us for this. He He takes the He gives us this opportunity, flips it on its head. In order to save us, the divine economy. Right? So there's providence and economy. Um, similarly, God inscribed his name, inscribed himself, gave clues about who he is um, in all of creation, and then gave us the equipment to detect those clues. Um, right, The faculties of the soul and the, the senses of the body and so on and so forth, reason, language to communicate about it. In order to save us again from sin, because of course he knew we were going to sin and fall when he created us. And he created us knowing that he himself, the son of God, would in fact be crucified and die on a cross and resurrect on the third day. He knew this before he created Adam. He created Adam anyway. Um, it's not that God didn't plan for this or God didn't know it. He knew it. Um, but in the same way, uh, he knew that we were going to fall, so he gave us everything that we needed in order to, to, to re return again to him. Um, and so this is why the, the Greek philosophers use their natural faculties to understand God, to understand something about God. Um, but that was not just providence, but it was also divine economy. On uh, the bottom of 160, uh, he says, speaking about the work of Greek philosophy, Clement shows that this, in some way, guides men towards truth, but also wages war against falsehood. Wages war against falsehood. If you read the writings of the Holy Fathers, they are all, of course, uh, infused with divine grace. But from the, in the human dimension, they're also steeped in Greek philosophy. Uh, there are any of the of the holy fathers who actually wrote or debated or defended the truth in the ecumenical councils that had didn't have a training in Greek philosophy. You, see, you might say, well, what about Saint Spiridon? Well, Saint Spiridon, of course, um, participated in the first ecumenical council, and through example, even his example is um, supposes Greek philosophy. Right, the, the, the various elements, water, fire, earth, are um, the elements that had been identified by Greek philosophers as the, the constituent elements of, of creation. Right? So even that presupposed, so God through the through Saint Spiridon, who was unlearned, 
Although I would say he's probably more learned than, than the average person today, <laughs> just because of where he, where he grew up and he lived. Um, uh, but he was unlearned compared, let's say, to St. Athanasios, or compared to Arius, of course, who used his learning in the opposite direction. Uh, but St. Spiridon, of course, God's miracle presupposed the philosophical knowledge uh, among the participants of the first ecumenical council. But among the fathers that wrote and left us their writings, none of them lacked knowledge of Greek philosophy. All of them were trained in Greek philosophy. And of course, they were trained in the methods of Greek philosophy um, and, and clung to what was sound in Greek philosophy, right? They rejected the eternity of the soul or the transmigration of souls, right? Um, the pre-existence, in other words, of the soul and its movement from body to body. Life, lifespan to lifespan, that's what Plato they read that part. But reading Plato, especially reading Aristotle and, so, and other philosophers, they were able to train their minds to think systematically. Um, and, and they used that training to defend the truth. So on the one hand, you see Greek philosophy con uh, contributing to preparing people, preparing ancient people Greeks and others to receive the gospel, but taking them only to one point, not actually giving them the entirety of the story of the truth, but only up to a point. Um, and then we also see Greek culture and Greek philosophy contributing to the defense of the truth. But for both of these, on both of the ends of this sort of story, what's not true is that Greek philosophy contributed to the um, discovery, right, of truth, of, of, of divine truth, right? Um, that discovery is not possible, only revelation, right? Only revelation is possible. Um, so page 62, Greek philosophy is a gift of God um, because it's the, the use of our natural faculties in their proper way. Um, I'm going to skip ahead here. Um, on page 65, um, uh, well, actually on page 64, there's an interesting point about the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It says, um, All wisdom comes from God, and that divine wisdom and, and divine wisdom guided the Greek nation. And then it says Clement goes so far as to posit that it was divine providence that which dictated the holy books of the Old Testament be translated into Greek, and that the books of the New Testament be, be written in Greek. Right? The translation of this of the Old Testament into Greek, many of the uh, Contemporaries of our Lord and of the Apostles, people like Philo of Alexandria, in particular Philo of Alexandria, uh, who lived in the first century AD, perhaps knew about Christianity, maybe he didn't, um, but he's kind of a predecessor of the Holy Fathers because, of course, he had, he, um, he was a, a, a Jew, ethnically and religiously, but uh, was a Greek by culture, living in Alexandria. Josephus is, a, is someone else, um, one of his contemporaries, another Hellenized Jew, um, like the apostles, like St. Paul, actually. Um, and, um, and so he's a, he's a predecessor because he combined Greek philosophy with uh, the revelation of the, uh, uh, of the prophets. He used Greek philosophy to explain the revelations that the prophets received, the Old Testament, uh, and to defend them, right? And Philo of Alexandria actually is one of our sources in uh, our knowledge of the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, the translation called the Septuagint. Um, and he maintains, and the Holy Fathers continued this uh, and, and held this as well, that the translation of the Old Testament into Greek was a second revelation. Um, and this, this means at least two things. Obviously, the scripture was divinely revealed 
divinely revealed to the prophets. So the first five books of the Old Testament were written by the holy prophet Moses, um, who received all that information, how God created the world, creation of Adam and Eve. There must have been oral tradition as well among the Hebrews, right? But the details in, in Genesis um, were uh, a product of divine revelation. And of course, other books written by the by other prophets, the Psalms, for example, uh, were also a product of of divine revelation. So that's the first revelation, the revelation of God to the prophets. The Septuagint. How is it a second revelation? Well, it's a revelation. It's a revelation of God to everyone else beyond the Hebrew nation, right? Prior to this, the Old Testament was only written in Hebrew. But with the translation of the Old Testament into the Greek, it became accessible to everyone else, not just Greeks, but anyone who studied the Greek language. And through the translation of the Bible of the Old Testament into Greek, it was accessible to others who didn't even speak Greek as well because it was translated from the Greek into other languages. For example, it was translated from the Greek, the Old Testament was translated from Greek into Latin, right? I'm not talking about the Vulgate, I'm talking about the Vetus, um, the Old Latin Bible. Um, and in fact, the greatest defender of the Septuagint is none other than St. August Augustine of Hippo. He is the, the one uh, who defended the Septuagint against Jerome, his likewise Latin-speaking colleague, who was against the Septuagint and, and um, did his own translation called the Vulgate uh, from Hebrew to, Greek, to Latin, right? But St. Augustine was against this and said, no, this is the received tradition of the, of the church. We have to accept because the Septuagint itself was a second revelation. Um, Jerome uh, argued that, well, um, you know, there are mistakes. If you look at the text that the Jews have, the Hebrew text, and you compare it to the Septuagint, in some places there are some words that don't match up, so on and so forth. Um, and part of that is explained by um, changes that entered the Hebrew text, in particular the Hebrew text that exists today, the so-called Masoretic text, is not identical to the Hebrew text of the third century BC or even of the first century AD. And most scholars agree that the Septuagint actually represents an older version of the Hebrew text because texts over, texts over time change. Uh, they, they, mistakes enter in or uh, there's scribal error in other words, but there's also modifications that are introduced. Um, but already in the uh, 400s um, AD, there were differences between the Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, part of it is explained by the fact that there were changes already in the Hebrew. The other part is explained by many fathers as, a, again, part of this second revelation that God led the translators. They weren't actually making mistakes. God led the translators to these particular translations in order to bring people closer to him. And we see this in the life of St. Simeon, right? The life of St. Simeon, when he questioned a word, it's like, how can this, you know, the, the, a virgin shall conceive, how will that, how, how does that happen? Sorry, my flashlight started flashing. Um, uh, how does this, how does, this is the wrong word, right? He questioned that and he was punished. He was given a, a penance, right, to live until he saw the, the 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 infant born of a virgin, right, and he saw that forty days after the infant was born, right, um, and so that that story confirms the second revelation, right, that the Holy Spirit was leading the translators to translate the text in a particular way, uh, in order to um, 
reveal God's providence uh, to all the nations, right? Greek speakers and non-Greek speakers. Um, and at the same time, uh, God provided is divine providence that dictated that the books of the New Testament would be written in Greek because that ensured their wide dissemination. Greek was not just spoken by the Greeks. Greek was not just a language, an ethnic language of a narrow, narrowly defined and small ethnic group. <clears throat> uh, Greek was the language of high culture and higher education. Um, and the translation, the writing of the New Testament in Greek ensured its dissemination. Um, and so uh, it says, wherefore also the scriptures were translated into the language of the Greeks in order that they, that they might never be able to allege the excuse of ignorance inasmuch as they are able to hear also what we have in our hands if they only wish, right? So now all of a sudden Greek philosophy and the translation become a liability to the, to the Greeks who don't believe. You have everything you need to believe and yet you still don't believe. Right, this, these are the pagans that wouldn't convert, that didn't want to um, accept the gospel. Um, on page 65, bottom of 64, top of 65, he says, why were the scriptures written in Greek and not in Latin or some other tongue? I guess they could have been written in Latin too, because Latin was at least spoken, it was a language of government and of the Western Mediterranean. There's a historical circumstance though, that a uh, historical uh, fact though, that Greek was spoken more widely than Latin was. Uh, but nonetheless, Enectario says, because the Greek nation from its appearance was earmarked for Christianity by divine providence, the Greek nation has ever been called to labor on Christianity's behalf, and therefore things have been ordered towards its attaining knowledge of revealed truth through both philosophy and revelation. We are thus able to say that philosophy led the Greek nation to Christ, that it might prove a worthy means of spreading his divine principles. This is the highest calling of the Greek nation. He's speaking to the Greeks. This is what you need to be working towards. This is what this is your mission. Obviously, this is also the mission of every Orthodox nation and of every Orthodox Christian, right? Um, the um, uh, the laboring on Christianity's behalf, defending the faith, spreading the faith, bringing people to the faith, elucidating the faith. Right? The, the, the faith becomes the center of the identity of, an entire, of entire nations. Um, however, section 22, he says, this is my conviction. Presupposing, however, that there are some who consider Greek philosophy to be an expression of the human intellect's power, and the end and aim of man's spiritual life, wherein the fulfillment of his spiritual needs and the fullness of his heart's desires are to be found, that it is the bearer of happiness and blessedness, we will thus attempt to briefly set forth the reasons why Greek philosophy cannot be the end in itself, but is a concurrent cause and a guiding and a guide leading to this aim, right? So here he's taking on humanism and the enlightenment. Uh, for the next couple of sections, he's going to refute the claims of the humanists and the claims of the so-called enlightened philosophers. Um, what is humanism? Uh, well, there are, there are two definitions of humanism. One is not bad. One is bad. Uh, the original definition of humanism um, comes from the Latin term uh, studia humanitatis. Uh, which means the, the humane studies, humane studies, by which medieval Western Christian scholars uh, meant that the study of grammar, logic, rhetoric, philosophy 
that's what makes you fully human, right? That's the basis for the liberal arts, right? Because those are all um, uh, exercising you through, by studying those disciplines, you exercise your natural faculties and you bring them to their natural fruition, to their natural point. Um, and you're able to use them uh, to full benefit and to their full potential. Um, that in itself is a position also that the, the Holy Fathers took. And St. Nectarius is going to take in the next essay, right? And in this essay, he's been taking this position that studying, yes, can get us to a certain point. It, could, it, it, it works, it exercises our mind. But the bad definition of humanism is the idea that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all, which was in fact something uttered by ancient Greeks first, but it was revived in the 1300s in Western Europe. Man is the measure of all things, but also in Byzantium uh, in, the 13, in, the, in the late 1200s and the 1300s. The idea that uh, philosophy is the end of life, meaning it's the final goal of life, right? Um, that's humanism. The Enlightenment uh, then took this idea and ran with it. The Enlightenment was a, a, a philosophical movement in Europe during basically the 1700s and the early 1800s. And they ran with this. And they, this is where man is the measure of all things became um, policy. It became a prescription for society. Um, uh, the, the Enlightenment is supposed to be about creating rational society, extracting man from irrational obligations and from tradition, in particular from religion, um, so on and so forth. Philosophy, again, becomes the end of life. But philosophy cannot be the end itself. It is a concurrent cause. What does that mean? And this is basically, um, he's leading up to what uh, St. Clement says, philosophy being the search for truth, contribute to the comprehension of truth, not as being the cause of comprehension, but a cause along with other things and a cooperator, perhaps also a joint cause. <clears throat> and as the several virtues are causes, so while truth is one, many things contribute to its investigation. So philosophy is the search for truth. Um, but it's not the cause of the comprehension of, of absolute truth. And what he really means here is revelation because God gives the revelation, gives knowledge about himself, but also the virtues, the, the spiritual virtues. So there's grace, there's the virtues, there's the fight against the passions. All those things contribute to our comprehension of the truth. And philosophy only gives us some of the tools other tools, asceticism gives us. And finally, the full comprehension actually comes from God. Greek philosophy was truly a guide to and a concurrent cause of the Greeks grasping the truth, but not that truth which is the end of humanity's efforts, the end and aim of its action. There has ever been a void in man's heart which philosophy is unable to fill, right? There's a void that philosophy can't fill. The humanists and the enlightened, so-called enlightened philosophers believe that philosophy is the only thing that could fill that void. Barlam the Calabrian, who uh, debated St. Gregory Palamas in the 1330s and 1340s, said that philosophy, in fact, is necessary um, uh, not, not, not merely necessary in this concurrent sense that St. Ignatius and Clement were or Alexandria were talking about, um, but it's all sufficient for the acquisition of, of not just virtue, but knowledge of God and divine realities. Um, that is, philosophy fills the void of the heart. It can't. Philosophy is not only unable to fill this void of the heart, but it may it but may only increase it. Philosophy says discovers God in creation, increases the longing for him in the heart, 
yet is unable to draw near and embrace him. Right? Um, on page 67, it is unable because it lacks the fruits of the grace of the Holy Spirit. It is unable because it lacks the sanctification and the means of participating in it. Finally, it is unable because it lacks divine revelation and religious authority, which grants rest to the hearts of, the, of its adherents. Right? Um, our conviction that philosophy is not an end, sorry, is not an aim or a final end, but a guide leading to Christianity, which overcomes philosophy's shortcomings and perfectly satisfies the desires of the human heart. So philosophy is a means to an end. It's a set of tools that lead to Christianity, but it's only Christianity and not the ideas behind Christianity. Christianity uh, uh, reduced to a bunch of, to an ideology, to a bunch of ideas. It's the sacraments of the church. It's the ascetic life of the church. It's the divine grace combined with the tools that philosophy gives us, defended perhaps by the tools that, that philosophy gives us. Um, that's what satisfies the human heart. The human fi heart finds rest only in God and only grace, only the mysteries of the church lead us uh, to union with God. Um, Says Greek philosophy is this inability to solve the following three problems. First, humanity desires to know and believe in the true God because it feels the need to draw near to him. Second, it desires to know and be convinced of his worth and his relationship to the divine. Third, it desires to know those things connected with eternal life. Philosophy was able to lead those engaged in it toward the truth and to show them the image of the truth as if in a mirror or through some translucent or opaque body. But though teaching about these things, it is unable to convince, to lift up to that weight which oppresses the hearts of men. Right? It's, it's good as far as a bunch of theories, as far as its theories are concerned. Philosophy taught sound theories, but no one was convinced to bring their moral life into line with good theories. On account, on account of their lacking divine authority and surety, right? Man seeks the, uh, assurances. We see this in the life of the saints. Um, the saints, the martyrs of the early church contending uh, in their sufferings. And there's a lot of people that had studied philosophy around them. Some, many people were actually convinced by arguments. St. Catherine, however, St. Catherine had grace um, and uh, was able to convince all those um, philosophers of the truth. But what was even more convincing was the example of the martyrs. Because of the superabundance of grace in their martyrdom. Um, <coughs> these are the assurances, the, 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 the proofs concerning the truth of the teaching. The hope that the, gra that the grace engendered in the hearts of the martyrs, convinced many. Um, the wife and daughter of Diocletian were convinced by the example of St. George. They believed in the God of St. George. St. Demetrius also converted many, just through his example. And what, what was his example? His example was kind of if you take, if you look at it from a secular point of view, it's kind of ridiculous. He's just being executed and tortured, right? It's why would anyone have that as an example? But that's not the point. The point is what allowed him to endure that? The hope. And what gave him that hope? Grace. And who's, who, who bestowed that grace? God. Thus, the God that could bestow that type of grace that could engender such hope and give such a person such patience with these tremendous sufferings, that God must be the true God. But it's not just the reasoning behind that that converted people. It's also that that grace directly touched them. It directly touched them. They were able, they, there's an experience that's beyond reason, not unreasonable or irrational, but above reason and above rationality. Um, and at the end, I'm going to end it because it's 9.49. Um, 
this is my humble opinion concerning these matters. That's a very, very, very modest conclusion to, to such a great essay. Um, right, St. Nectarius was a very careful scholar uh, and, and um, but also a humble man. Um, and uh, you should follow his example. Uh, at least those of us that are, especially those of us who are involved in, uh, you know, academics and scholarship. So I think we have 10 minutes, but we can go a little longer if, if there are a lot of questions or any questions about what we read or discussed. Hello, Leonidas. Yes, Barbara. How are you? Okay. Um, How are you? Thank, I'm good, thank you. Um, you had mentioned man was created in the image and likeness of God. Yes. Um, now, was that was was man created in the image of God the Father or created in the image of God the Son? Or the Holy Spirit? Or the Holy Spirit, right, right. All of the all of the above. All of the above. Okay. How can okay? So then, all right. I think I understand it now. How you said we can lose that. Yes. So. Uh, there are certain parts of us that, of course, um, are part of the divine image that are um, never lost completely. Like, for example, our, our free will, right, or our rationality. They could be buried and distorted, right, or sullied. Um, but the fall did not, um, we didn't lose them completely in the fall. In fact, why did I say all of the above? Because internally we're, we're triadic, right? We have mind, word, and spirit. And that's an icon of the Holy Spirit, of, sorry, of the Holy Trinity, which is mind, word, and spirit. The mind is the Father, the Holy Fathers. You read the triadic canons on Sunday mornings, early in the midnight service of, of Sunday, the, the God the Father is routinely... Um, referred to as the mind who begets the word and projects the spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, divine word. Our, our, um, the divine word, of course, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, that part stays inside of us, that structure. But we, of course, we can, use, we can misuse our faculties. And so that's what I mean by could be distorted. Okay. Um, think of it in terms of having an icon and then having layers of soot and, and mud over the icon, but the icon's still there. The divine likeness is, um, so we have the image, but we have the likeness. The likeness is connected by the Holy Fathers to our assimilation to God, becoming, uh, not merely becoming, being static images of God, but actually acquiring the, moving with, cooperating with God, moving with God, acquiring his life inside us so that we become living and breathing portraits of God. That's how close our union with God is. So would that be theosis then too? Yes, exactly. That's theosis. Okay. That's theosis. That's illumination and deification. Okay. Um, where the divine grace comes inside of us and, and, um, and, and we begin to uh, act God and God acts, act with God rather, and God acts with us. Uh, and we, we move with, with God's movements and God moves within us. He walks inside us. He walks with us, right? All of those are different ways uh, of describing the theosis. So um, with the fall, we of course lost the likeness. And some fathers say that the, the purpose of the rule given to Adam and Eve was to attain the likeness of God. They already had the image, uh, but they were going to attain the likeness or, or, or grow in the likeness. Uh, that is, attain theosis, which is why the devil is called the deceiver, the diabolos, the, 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 uh, not just the deceiver, but the, the um, sycophant. Um, uh, because he 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 flipped the truth. He just he he slanders the slander. He slandered God that God doesn't want us to become gods, but he does. That's why he created us. That's why he gave the rule not to eat from that particular tree. 
um, so that we can join our will with his will and then advance and grow in the divine likeness. So when Adam and Eve fell, they lost the likeness and the image became sullied, became buried, became distorted, um, but never obliterated. Um, and so then, the, then our Lord comes and becomes, comes as a man and gives us the church and the church's mysteries work to purify the image and then help us grow in the divine likeness. So baptism purifies the divine image inside us. And then uh, chrismation uh, implants divine grace inside us. And then with the Holy Eucharist taking communion, we grow in the divine likeness from, from glory to glory. Um, right? And so the, the church's mysteries are the reverse of the fall in that sense. Thank you, Leonidas. You're welcome. I liked what you had to say about um, the authority of, of Revelation. I don't think all the philosophers even have authority um, in their words because all of their works and their, uh, their knowledge that they came upon was through the powers of their intellect. Right. And obviously, like, like I, I, I look at Plato and I understand he had the resolve, rather Socrates had the resolve to accept death for his principle. But I think it's very important that none of these philosophies none of these philosophies, Platonism, Stoicism, um, existed after Christianity took over in the fourth century. I mean, they were almost utterly destroyed. And I think it's because like, even as St. Nectarius says in his book, um, uh, he has a text that's about the, the expectation of the nations in Christology. And he says that all of the nations, all the cultures of the world had this idea of this redeemer and I suppose that Christ was the only thing, the only thing that can have authority in and of himself in all of his words. I mean, who transforms lives like Christ has? Nobody. Right. Like, I don't think anything can transform a life. You can transform a mindset, but Christ is the only person that has ever transformed a life, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, um, the, that's, very, that's, that's an important point. On the question of the relationship between philosophy, the philosophical schools in Christianity, the Holy Father did continue a lot of, um, in a transfigured way, the philosophical schools. In particular, Platonism survived a long time. And two of the greatest Platonists, at least in my opinion, and perhaps, great, I think not just perhaps, certainly greater than Plato, but people, two, two saints that took Plato's ideas to the maximum, corrected his errors, are St. Dionysius the Areopagite and St. Maximus the Confessor, who even secular historians in the secular history are part of the Platonist or Neoplatonist um, sort of lineage, have Neoplatonist lineage. Um, they, I wouldn't call them Neoplatonists in the absolute sense that they are actually only Neoplatonists, uh, but the, certainly they responded to Neoplatonism and and and, um, uh, and corrected Neoplatonism. Um, but even Stoicism, even Epicureanism, continued. I mean, the 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 flight, the flight to the desert of the Holy Fathers of the of the Desert Fathers has a certain Epicurean uh, element to it. The Epicureans were not about pleasure. They were about avoiding pleasures in order to avoid pain, right? Avoiding play, because the, the theory of Epicureanism is that if you go too, off, too far off in one direction, you're in the direction of, of pleasure, you're going to feel a lot of pain. So the anahoresis has this aspect to it, avoiding the world um, in order to avoid sin, right? Avoiding pleasures, we could put it another way, avoiding the pleasures of the world in order to avoid eternal pain, right? 
obviously, there's, I'm not saying that the Desert Fathers were Epicureans, but Epicureanism kind of prompted maybe some of them to think more clearly about the question of, uh, of, of pain and suffering. Um, Stoicism was also about controlling the passions. And one word that the Holy Fathers um, kept from the Stoics is prosohi. Obviously, prosohi existed in ancient Greek, but as a philosophical term, as a part of uh, prosohi means attentiveness, attention. If you read Marcus Aurelius, he's and uh, he's got he talks a lot about this, being attentive. Um, and that's something that they kept. Um, but obviously, Christianity is the uh, summation, everything that's good in these philosophical schools uh, finds its full form in Christianity, right? And of course, Christianity also has grace. This is to your point that the only only Christ could speak with authority and only those who represent Christ and are uni united with Christ can actually speak with authority and work actual persuasion and persuade people Persuade people to repent, right? To to come to self knowledge. Are there any other questions or comments? Wonderful class once again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yes, these, uh, it's uh, reading St. Nectarios. We should give our thanks to St. Nectarios because he gives us yes. wonderful things to think about. And he's a very good uh, systematic writer. I really like, I've come to an, uh, a new appreciation of, of St. Nectarios as a scholar and as a writer, um, which of course are the least aspects of St. Nectarios because his sainthood is much greater than, than those callings. But nonetheless, uh, St. Nectarios has given us a lot of his writings are very rich, and I wish more were translated into English. Maybe it's something that some of us should work on. <laughs> some okay. of us have thank his writings. I thank you then for relating his writings to all of us. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, everyone, if there aren't any more questions, I think we could wrap it up for today. Thank you for coming, for logging in. And I guess we'll have one more session, a bonus session, which is going to be about the last chapter of this book. Okay. Oh, yeah. Everyone, God bless everyone, good and uh, have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.